Seems like Scott is kind of stepping his game up with the uh, interaction questions. It's good. It's good. Keep us on our toes. So um, continuing the tradition of our vision series, uh, handing out some books, free books, right? You guys down with some free books? Yes. You guys are so much more lively than the first service. Man. <laughs> All right. So we got this book. These are just books like that help us kind of set culture. You know, we, um, we've got authors that we like and want to recommend um, and want to put good resources in y'all's hands. So this is a book that called Putting the Past in Your Place, Moving Forward in Freedom and Forgiveness. Really good for just thinking through, man, how do I deal with issues in my life? We all have issues in our life, okay? So I'm going to look over here, but throw the book over here. Oh, Elliot, my man. You guys can wrestle over it. Uh, this, is, this is one of my faves. I'm reading this right now, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Um, just a great book that will help you engage Lots of different questions that lots of people that don't love Jesus are asking. Um, questions like, can there, there can't just be one true religion. How could a good God allow suffering? Christianity is a straitjacket. The church is responsible for so much injustice. How can a loving God send people to hell? Science has disproved Christianity. You can't take the Bible literally. And, and Keller addresses all of those and then has, in the second half of the book, kind of just a, a positive a- apologetic for why the Christian faith should be trusted. So anybody want this one? I saw this one right here first. And this is a book that I think is, I mean, all these books should be required reading for all of you guys, but this one especially. Uh, I love this book. It really ties into our sermon this morning. Uh, It's called When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. Anything you can get your hands on by Ed Welch, read it. Um, When People Are Big and God is Small and just like uh, dealing with fear of men. Fear of, of people, and um, God doesn't loom very large, and people's opinions really do. You know, anybody deal with that? Who wants this one? Oh, Darren, there you go. Did they give you one last week? No. Okay, good. <laughs> awesome. All right, so um, we are doing a three-week vision series, if you're new here today. And every year we do this. So last week uh, we focused on the gospel. See that on the wall there? There's like kind of our three core values. This week we're going to focus on community, next week we talk about mission, and we just want to continue to reiterate who are we as a people, what are the values that we orbit around, and so here's our mission statement, our mission statement is this, the Vine Church desires to be a spirit-filled family that seeks to make disciples and plant churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration, so that word family, you can leave that up there if you want, Hans, that word family is what we're talking about today, what is family or community, what is community as family, Christian community, what does that look like and how do we do that? Okay, um, that's what we're talking about today. So if you have a Bible, uh, let's open it up to Philippians, okay? If you don't have a Bible, there's some behind the sound booth, behind the wall there. Uh, I encourage you to bring your own Bible so you can follow along. Hopefully you can be convinced that I'm not making this up. And so uh, bring a Bible, fire it up on your smartphone if you've got one of those. Uh, It's also on the screen. So Philippians, we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2, okay? And Philippians, it goes uh, in the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you're in that department of the Bible, you'll be near Philippians. So let me give you a little background about what's going on in this biblical text, okay? Okay. So the Philippians, the book of Philippians gets its name from a church that was planted in the city of Philippi, 
So Philippi, Philippians. Um, these are people who lived in Philippi. And this guy named Paul was one of the most outrageous opponents of the early church. And he got radically converted. God just converted him. And he became from one of the craziest men who ever opposed Christianity to probably the most passionate missionary the world's ever seen. And his name was changed from Saul to Paul, and God used him to write a large majority of the New Testament. One of these letters that he wrote was to the church in Philippi. Now, the church in Philippi was a church that he planted, okay? And he's writing to this church that he planted from prison, okay? He's writing from prison, and he's writing them to encourage them. This group of believers in Philippi about 2,000 years ago, and he's saying to them, guys, stay strong. Stay strong. Don't be discouraged about me being in prison, okay? Um, Keep the faith. I want to encourage you. Press on. You're doing great. Make sure you stay united. you got to stay united. And I want us to just zero in on, on how he writes just before the text we're going to focus on today. We're going to focus on chapter 2, but I want you to set context. You never want to read a Bible verse in isolation. You always want to read your Bible in context. You, when you read a letter, like this is a letter. And so if you were, imagine getting a letter in the mail, would you ever just read one sentence? No. You read the whole letter because the letter, like that, a one sentence could mean anything, but the context of that letter that you got from your grammar or whatever because your grandma would be the only one that actually writes a letter anymore. Um, the letter that you got from grandma has context. You don't just read one sentence, okay? And it's the same with this letter. So we're going to focus on chapter 2, but we need to look at the context to help us understand what is the first verses in chapter 2 all about, okay? So let's look at verse 27 of the end of chapter 1. And I want us to see how Paul emphasizes unity in community. But notice first, he starts, before he talks about unity in community, he he wants to talk about the gospel. He wants to root it in the gospel, okay? Look at verse 27. He writes to them and he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what does that mean? Does that mean you're trying to prove that you're worthy of Jesus' love? No, that's that's not what this means. What this means is, what he's saying is, Let your life show that you love Jesus. Let your life show that you cherish the gospel. Let your life display, like manifest itself, that Jesus is Lord. Okay? Only let your manner of life, how you live, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Show that this gospel is valuable to you. Okay? So how are we going to do that, Paul? How How do you expect us to do that? The Philippians are asking. Well, he tells them, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that, parenthetical comment here, whether I come and see you or an absent, or I'm absent because I'm in prison, so only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that I may hear what? I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened by any, by, in anything by your opponents. 
So he starts by saying, if you love Jesus, it's going to look like something. Well, what's it going to look like? It's going to look like unity in community. See how he emphasizes this? Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. I mean, this is multiple pictures, multiple metaphors here, one after the other, to get a point across. Standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So, so Paul's saying that gospel-centered people, Jesus-loving people, will be united in community, and that's a big deal. Why? Well, because verse 28, look at that. It says, there's opposition. There's opposition to this, to this truth. There's opposition to a church that loves Jesus and the gospel. Verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So he's in prison. He's got opponents. And he's saying, you guys have opponents too. And you may not be in prison yet. That might be in the future. We don't know. But don't be frightened. Okay? There's opposition. So our unity is a big deal. Right? And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul's just saying, when persecution comes to you like it has to me as I sit here in prison, you're going to need each other. You're going to need to be of the same mind, of the same heart, standing side by side. Like, when the heat is on, the community has to be strong, right? When the heat of persecution is on, the community of God has to be strong. That's what he's saying. So that all sets up the context for what I want us to really focus on today as we keep reading into chapter 2. But let's review again. If you really believe this gospel, Paul says, then live in light of it and be united Gospel-centered living is a life that demonstrates that you believe the gospel, and that's going to look like something. It's going to look like unity and community. All right? The heat of persecution can cause you to drift so easily, and Paul knows that. But he's saying do battle against that tendency together as one. If you're isolated, you're sunk. But if you unite, there's so much strength to resist the gravitational pull to just chuck your faith when things get hard. So stay together. Now, I want us, before we go on to chapter 2, I want us to think of an application for our own context in our own day and age. I think in terms of our culture, I'm no prophet, but I would be willing to guess, if I were a betting man, I would bet on this, that our best days are probably behind us uh, in terms of not having to deal with much persecution as a church in our culture. Um, I think our best days are kind of behind us. You know, uh, the United States has probably experienced, whatever, 200, 300 years of relatively little persecution. And I think those days are starting to dwindle, okay? Now, hear me. The sky is not falling because Jesus rules and reigns. Okay, that has not changed, and that will never change. But in terms of maybe marginalization, increased marginalization culturally, 
um, increased suspicion culturally, maybe a softer persecution compared to a lot of countries in this world today, I think that's going to probably increase in our lifetime, and we shouldn't be shocked by that. Because except for these last 200 years or so of, of American history, persecution is just straight normal. The Bible just assumes it. The book of Peter says, don't act like something strange is happening to you when you suffer for Jesus. Like, that's always been the case. We just live in this little sliver, or have lived in this little sliver, where being a Christian can actually provide you some opportunities and afford you some advantages, and that just may be dwindling. I think the cultural tide is starting to turn little by little. It's probably not going to be prison time, and it's probably not going to be, you know, beheadings or whatever like Paul endured. But it could mean like lost jobs, lost wages, lost tax status for churches, being ostracized, things like that. And I think kind of the locus of this will probably be the Christian sexual ethic. Um, that's already just kind of happening, and I, and I think it will probably continue to happen. It's just the way the culture is moving, so we shouldn't be surprised and we shouldn't be bitter, okay? Jesus promised that these things would happen. It shouldn't be a big shocker. Again, the sky is not falling. But Paul is writing to a church in Philippi a little under 2,000 years ago, and he's writing to them in a context of persecution. He's saying, you've got to stay united. You've got to stay a community of unity. And, and different Issues, but persecution comes to the church today, even in our lifetime. So that was the reality for them then. It's the reality, or will be the reality for us in our lifetime. It's not hard to figure out why, why, why Paul commends unity and community for them then and for us now. God's word is still true to this day. And it's not hard to figure out why Paul would be so amped up about this, why he would plead, and we're going to see him continue to do that in chapter 2, why he would plead for them to be united. Because think about it like this. You could all relate to this. It's very simple. If you are rejected and ostracized out there, out there like in the world, what's going to happen if you're ostracized and rejected in the church as well? That can't ever be. We have to be united in community, Paul says, because if we're not, where else can you go if you're rejected out there in the world due to persecution? If you can't go to your church family because your church family is just riddled with gossip and infighting and division and and displaying a complete lack of unity and disorder, where else are you going to go, right? Right? Like, facing, facing persecution outside the church and inside the church, both, I mean, that's just recipe for disaster in terms of inner turmoil, right? Talk about being isolated. And Paul's just saying it can't ever be this way. Paul's saying that in light of persecution facing the church, the church has to be united in community. And he commends that to us as well. So then the next question might very simply be, okay, Paul, if you're a Philippian believer, you know, 
2,000 years ago, you might be thinking, okay, this sounds good, but how? How do we do this? Can you give us some, some practical help on how we pull this off? And so Paul says, yes, I can. Let me give you some glue that makes powerful persecution-defying community happen. He tells them how to do this. Let's read in chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement, verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let's break this down piece by piece, okay? Verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, this is just an illustrative way of Paul saying, if you're a Christian, like if you have found Christ and life in Him encouraging, if you're comforted by His love, you can just track with this in verse 1. If you have the life of the Spirit flowing in you, if you're, moving by, if you're moved by Christ's sacrifice and feel affection and sympathy for one another in light of that, like, if the gospel's impacted your life, what then? He says, verse 2, complete my joy by what? By being of the same mind. And he does it again, just rattles off these statements of unity. Same mind, same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Like, he doesn't just say it once, he says it four different ways, and that repetition leads us to think that this is really important for him, Right? He's just saying, if you're a Christian, be united. Because I planted this church, and it would just break my heart to see it implode through lack of unity. So let's not do that. Make me happy or joyful by demonstrating this unity, this love that you have for each other that flows from your love for Christ. If you're a Christian, you love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, and everyone else in the church loves Jesus, we all are loving Jesus together, then unity and community should be the natural overflow of this common love. Let me say that again. If you're a Christian, Paul says, you love Jesus, and if you love Jesus, and everyone else in the church loves Jesus, then unity in community should be the natural overflow of this love that you have in common. You with me? Now, what I just said is not hard to understand. We can all relate to this in very tangible ways in our life. If you have a mutual love of something, it's easy to feel united with those people that have the same love as you, right? So imagine, here's just an example that would be very common. Wisconsin people love the Packers, okay? And they pack themselves into Lambeau Field, and they all sit next to each other, really close, complete strangers sitting by each other. And imagine it's a close game, two minutes left, Packers down five, and they get the ball at the 25-yard line, and A-Rod has got to march them down the field, score six points, win the game. And they're marching down the field, marching down the field, marching down the field, 10 seconds left, they got to score to win this game, one last play, 
Jordy Nelson across the middle. Aaron Rodgers throws a bullet. Bingo, touchdown, game over, Packers win. What happens? You have this massive eruption of joy, right? And then what happens? You've got complete strangers high-fiving each other. Maybe some like hugging each other. Spilling beer on each other and laughing about it because they don't care because the Packers just won, right? What's the deal with grown men hugging other grown men that they don't even know, right? These are all just expressions of unity, are they not? Why do we do that? Why do total strangers act that way? Well, because those total strangers have the same love. So they express their unity in light of this game-winning touchdown. Packers won. We love the Packers, so we're going to express our unity because we have the same love. And Paul's just saying the same thing. Christians love Jesus. They love Jesus. Jesus is God himself, the greatest person in the universe, better than a Packers touchdown. Believe it or not. So, metaphorically speaking, we should be high-fiving and hugging each other all the time because we have this massive love in common. That's right. (laughs) Go for it. It should be easy to express our unity if we have the same love. And Paul says, you do. It's Jesus, so let's be united. Verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... If Jesus is real to you, complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Sounds great, Paul. Love it. Beautiful vision. But again, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? Give me something even more practical. How are we going to do this? How are we going to be verse 1 and 2 type people? Well, thankfully, he tells us. Let's just keep reading verse 3. Here's how. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So you want to answer the question, how do we do this? He just tells you. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition. What selfish ambition looks like, look like? What does selfish ambition look like? It looks like maybe a businessman who just shows up to church because he knows if he shows up to church, he'll give the impression of being a moral guy, even though Christianity is not all about just being a good person. Um, but he wants to give that impression and thinks that's the one way to get it, because if he gives that impression, then people might trust him, and if they trust him, they'll go to his business, and he'll get more money. So selfish ambition might look like just using the church to make your business flourish. Selfish ambition might look like the musician that just wants to shine in their gifts on stage, and so they're really passionate about serving musically in the church, but really deep down, it's more about knowing they're going to get a lot of compliments. And so just using the church selfishly to stroke the ego. And hey, I'm, I can relate to that. I was a church musician for 13 years full time, and I, there's room for my repentance in that. It might look like um, church leaders who just feel the need to be powerful, and so they get into leadership so they can boss people around selfishly. 
And it, and it can get real cloudy sometimes. Like, whose kingdom is trying to be built here? Is this dude trying to erect his own kingdom, or is it Jesus' kingdom? Like, which, which is it? Selfish ambition. So Paul's saying, you got to be on the lookout for selfish ambition. Beware of those attitudes. So let me ask, where are you tempted towards selfish ambition? Where, are you aware of how this could look in your life? Were you tempted? Were you tempted in these ways? Listen to what the book of James says about what happens to community when selfish ambition is the normal behavior. This is, this is a different author. This is a different book of the Bible. You don't need to turn there. Just look on the screen. James 3, 13 through 16. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and what? Selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and then he drops to the heavy here, demonic. Like if we pursue selfish ambition, we can align ourselves with demons. That's what the Bible says. For jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be what? Will there be unity? Nope. The opposite. Disunity, disorder, chaos. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Well, that's, that's, that's heavy words right there. And it's a, it's a good warning for us. Selfish ambition produces the anti-community. The opposite of what Paul is seeking to commend to the Philippian church. So it can't be selfish ambition. That's just destruction. That's the path of destruction. What should it be then? Verse, verse 3. Verse 3. What should it be then? It should be verse 3. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if, if we're going to have unity in community, if the Vine Church has any hope and we got tons of hope, to be a beautiful family, to be a beautiful community, unity is the pathway for that, okay? So how does that happen? It happens through humility. So said, dif- said differently, humility creates unity in community. All these I-T-Y words, right? Humility creates unity in community. That's the whole point for today. Unity creates humility, or sorry, humility creates unity in community. So humility is what he's commanding them. Don't, not selfish ambition, but humility. That's what's going to create a beautiful church. I think, I was trying to think of a, a good illustration of this this week, and I couldn't do any better than the Bible. And I think the picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet is one of the most powerful illustrations of humility that we could ever come up with. And this happens in John chapter 13. We don't need to turn there. Um, I'll just summarize what happens. 
but you need to know a little bit about foot washing in the first century. So in the first century in the Middle East, um, people wore sandals mainly, and they walked around in a dusty climate, a dirty climate um, that was hot a lot and dusty, and so your feet would get just gross. And they also didn't have sanitation procedures like we do in our day and age, and so things would just go in the street, and people walk in the street. So your feet would just be gross. And, and so what was customary is you couldn't participate in like a, a, a dinner party um, or just hospitality with others without, as you enter that house, having your feet washed. And so if you were more well-to-do, you could have a servant or someone that works for you do the foot washing because it's kind of a menial task. Um, just, yeah, like uh, a task for someone who knew their powerlessness, okay? And it would have been dirty and stinky and nasty. And we don't really have a cultural equivalent of foot washing in, in our day. And I was trying to think of an example. So I came up with an example. And it's, granted, it's a little far-fetched, and it's almost a little silly, but I think it really drives home the point of the beauty of Jesus practicing this type of humility and setting the tone as a leader. So imagine this kind of scenario. We don't have foot washing, but let's say we had this, and I'm just making this up, so just go with it. Let's say that when you had a dinner party or you had guests in your home, um, every time that someone used the bathroom, somebody else, not the person who used the bathroom, somebody else had to sign up to clean it, okay? And Maybe rich families could just employ someone to be in their home and be like the live-in janitor to clean the bathroom. Um, but middle-class families or those that didn't have as much, you know, they can't have someone to do that and hire them and live in their house. So what are you going to do? You're going to have to, someone's going to have to step up and volunteer to do this because this is a cultural norm. Every time after someone uses the bathroom, you've got to clean it. And it's smelly, stinky work, as you can imagine, right? It's got to be done. Now, the the illustration gets even more silly, but just go with it. Uh, Let's say you're having a dinner party, and one of your friends happens to be the president of the United States. And you invite the president over with some other friends, and you're sitting around having dinner. Someone gets up and uses the bathroom, and you're all looking around at each other like, well, someone's got to clean it. Who's going to do it? And all of a sudden, the president of the United States himself says, I'm willing, and jumps up, and he does it. Okay? Now, Jesus washing the disciples' feet would have been more powerful than that because Jesus is greater than the president of the United States. But think about it like this. If, if the leader sets the tone like that, this tone of humility and selflessness, what kind of atmosphere would that create in that group of people? Think disciples back then or you at your dinner party? As you observe this amazing act of humility and service, do you think like arrogance would would reign in the room at that point? Do you think that you just pile more stuff on like, well, Prez, if you're doing the, the bathroom, maybe you can take the garbage out too and there's... There's a pile of dishes here. You want to dive in there too? Would that be our attitude? Do you think it would like cause people to just provoke one another in selfishness? Would that be the tone that's set? No, the leader setting the tone in humility 
creates an environment where everyone would desire to be united in community. And that's what Paul is saying in the rest of our text for today. He's saying Jesus has set this tone. Jesus is the model. Jesus is the picture. Jesus is the living illustration of what selfless ambition looks like. He ultimately went the other way, away from selfish ambition and pursued selfless ambition. And that's what verse 5 leads us to. And so he's saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Like, consider Jesus, the leader, as he set the tone. How's that going to empower this unity and community? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if you love Jesus, you're going to love community. And if you're going to love Jesus and love community, that community has to be united. And if we're going to be truly united, we have to pursue selfless ambition. And Jesus is the model for that. Jesus is the one who did it. Jesus laid down his life for those who failed to do it. Jesus is the ultimate tone setter of selflessness. He sets the tone in the room. And that tone, as we all keep that in mind, enables us and empowers us by the power of the Spirit to do it as well and to join him in it. That's what Paul's assuming here for this early church, this Philippian church, and for us as well, Vine Church, Madison, 2016. So let me just ask you again. How do you think you can pursue following Jesus in setting the tone of selflessness and running the other direction from selfish ambition? What could that look like in your life? Because when that happens, check out what happens. When you have a group of people committed to selfless ambition, you've got this interweb of outwardly focused love, and guess what the byproduct is of that? It's like massive strength in unity. Humility created unity in community. Now just think about this in a, in a smaller scale, like a small microcosm that might be marriage. Kim and I talk about this all the time when we're doing marriage counseling. Um, you've got a husband and a wife who, if they're looking to one another with a selfless attitude, I'm thinking about what's best for you, you're thinking about what's best for me, and both of us are reciprocating this outwardly focused orientation. What happens in that marriage? Man, there's unity, right? And that's hard to break when they're both, both parties are focused on the other and not focused on self. Now, take that two-person and extrapolate that out to 200 people. Let's say the Vine Church, two, 200 people or so, and I've got like my city group, for example, and I'm thinking about 10 people, and those 10 are thinking about a different 10, and those 10 are thinking about a different 10, and everybody's just collectively outwardly focused. So you've got this massive network or web of people that aren't thinking selfish, they're thinking selfless. Can you imagine the strength of that? If everybody's reciprocating that attitude, 
man, you can't break that apart. That's strength in community. That's a vision of true strength in unity. So selfless ambition is the quickest way to achieve massive strength. That's unity in community. And that's what Paul's getting at here in this text. Humility creates unity in community. Humility, a selfless attitude, creates unity in community. That's what makes the church beautiful. That's what makes the church a city on a hill that just shines. And people come in here that don't know the Lord. And they're like, there's something different about you guys that I don't experience at the office. I can just, just kind of absorb it as I hang out with you guys. Something's different. It's humility. It's humility is so countercultural, right? Humility creates unity in community. And why is that important? Because if the church is to thrive on this mission that God has given us to, to, to preach the gospel, make disciples among neighbors and nations, make disciples, plant churches among neighbors and nations, the only way we can do that is if we're united. And so humility is what's commended to us to create beautiful unity and community. Let me close with a caution, and then I'll be done. A caution and an encouragement, and then I'll be done. So the church is, um, let's see, a little over six years old now. And when we were young and small as a church, um, people didn't come to the vine because we had a lot of things to consume. People didn't come to the vine thinking, man, what's in this for me? Because there wasn't a lot... For us to offer. If you came to the vine early on, it was probably just because you were really down with the vision. You were down with what we were trying to accomplish. And that's why you came. So it was a real purity of motivation, usually. But I think as churches grow, and I've always seen this in any of the big churches I've worked in or just church in general, as churches get bigger and more money and more people and more programs and bigger buildings, um, it's easy to have that orientation of purity of motive for why I go to the church, that's easy. That can, that can change. And we're kind of in that stage six years later. We're growing up as a church. Like we're no longer in diapers as a church. We're kind of moving on to underwear, right? Maybe, maybe just pull-ups, but who knows? We're, we're definitely growing and getting bigger, right? And... As we grow, I think the tendency we have to fight is this. Especially as we think about, man, we're, God willing, we're going to have a new building in six, seven months. That's really exciting, but let's, 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 let's remember a really um, important caution in light of these verses this morning. I think the tendency for us as, as we grow and the church gets bigger and there's more stuff for us to consume is to think of community not as, man, what can I give how can I be selfless here? The temptation is, man, this church is kind of getting its sort of thing together, so man, there's probably some stuff here for me to consume. What's in it for me? Is this community meeting my needs? These people, man, I don't know if they're connecting with me very well. I'm not sure my needs are being met here very well. It's, it can get very insular. And man, we're Americans, and Americans, probably more than any other culture in the world, our consumers. Our wealth enables us to consume. 
And so we just, we just import that mindset into the church, and it can be toxic if we're not aware of it, if we don't battle it. So God's word commends to us, as we've seen, just a fundamentally different orientation. Like we're going to pursue humility that flows from knowing that we've been saved by Jesus apart from works, like we talked about last week. It's just a straight gift of grace. And so if we understand that gift of grace, how could it not just compel us to massive humility that's going to translate into beauty in a unified community? It's going it's to translate into us pursuing one another. I'm pursuing you and not just waiting around for you to pursue me because, man, this love of Christ as, I, as he's pursued me is so filling me. I'm not just going to wait around. I'm looking around going, man, who here can I love? That makes sense? We're going to pursue loving others and not being inward because, man, the Bible says he didn't wait around for me. Like, he, we didn't love him first, but he loved us first. And let me, just, let me just land on this, man. By and large, the whole tone that we've experienced in six years of this church is one of massive selflessness. I mean, you guys should be encouraged. Like when the elders sit around and talk about our church, honestly, we don't sit around and talk about how this is just a big group of people that are selfish. And so there's evidence of God working by his spirit in your life through his word because I think, by and large, is there a way we can grow? Sure. But by and large, you guys are taking the selfless route. And that's accomplishing really cool things in the life of our church and in our community and with those that don't know the Lord yet that we all interact with. So many of you are doing this so well already. So be encouraged. It's beautiful. And let's just keep it going. Let's just keep it going. There's so much at stake. Let's just keep it going. Okay? The Vine family is right now already a great family to be a part of. And we just pray that the Lord would continue by his spirit to make sure that happens as we move into the future. Amen? Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message that you've given us in Philippians about how we pursue unity in community. And may that be a powerful, powerful um, aspect of who we are as a church. We need your help by the power of your spirit and your word. Would you continue to help us? We believe, help our unbelief, God. In Jesus' name, amen.